Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. This week, Sean and I are talking about censorship and queer art from Robert Maplethorpe to now and what it can tell us about the ways that our culture deals with queer issues at a broader scope. Hey, Sean. Hey. What month is it? Game Rights Month, round two! We're going to talk about queer censorship. I feel like this is something that you have thought of, heard of, or indirectly experienced, but we're going to make it very clear. Gay is bad, allegedly. We're obviously focusing specifically on uh, censorship within fine art. The goal here today is to talk about some specific incidents of censorship that we can point to, sort of their lasting impact, and also how this is an issue that has never completely gone away. Um, But we're also going to talk about the way that we talk about it, because I think part of the reason why we wanted to do this, I know certainly the reason why I wanted to, is because as somebody who has studied art in the academic space, the way that we talk about censorship in any way, but specifically in the realm of LGBTQIA artists is not always productive. And and it's often talked about as something that is sort of backwards looking. It's a thing that happened in the past that we've moved beyond, um, <laughs> which, you know, is never the case. But I think that also the way that we do talk about that past stuff is not always the most productive. Nope. So we're going we're gonna to touch on that. Sean, what is your relationship to gay fine art, fine gay art? Great question. I, my mind is forever rotted by the social media. So the, my concept of like prominently gay-focused art is always pleasantly taken pictures of hot men, hot cis men that are of a certain body type, and of, like, either genitalia for the sake of shock value or, like, gay people existing and somehow touted as a revolutionary art. I mean, that second part is one of the inherent problems about cutting this genre into its own genre, right? Mm -hmm. For it to be gay art, it has to be about being gay, right? And so no matter how passively it exists in the artwork, it becomes an active aspect of it, which is productive in areas where that conversation isn't otherwise happening. But it also can be a very difficult space to navigate when that becomes the only thing that the art can be, right? And like in every other area of art, Gay art is not just about being gay, right? It is about the human experience in all aspects. Just this one particular aspect happens to be forefront. Right. Um, But the problems with it, from what I understand, please correct me um, if I'm wrong, is it's somehow both like existing as a gay is a revolutionary act, which in some ways is, but maybe... So less so in 2021, just the mere existence of queerness is revolutionary. 
we've hopefully moved the needle past that in certain countries at least. Um, but so much of the queer art I see is of a cis muscular white male or the requisite Latinx or black person. Right. Or, or if you really want to get there, oh my God, there's an Asian man there that's being lauded for sexuality. We are revolutionaries. <laughs> or white, traditionally attractive lesbians. Mm-hmm. A lot of art in that sphere as well. Right. There's this fixation, uh, if you want to say, as a community for gay men or anyone who revolve their attraction around gay men um, needing to have this body type. It apparently... And I can see it comes from the scars of the AIDS crisis, where um, muscle wastage and body wastage was a common symptom of it. So the need to glorify this body type and and aim for this body type, a lot of its symptoms as a community comes from like fighting against what ravaged the queer community. But now we've lost that context in the sense of we are not currently fighting for our lives from that disease and from that issue, but it's still baked into the fabric of existence for the queer, for the queer cis male community and for the queer male community and for anyone who interacts with anyone who appears to be male or is male. Like even, um, (laughs) I hate to bring it up, but from drag race, there was a queer trans man who was on the show this season and talked about there's this problem even in the trans community of everyone needs to look like Barbie or Ken. So it's just, it proliferates through everything. Um, And this need for attractiveness that somehow also is just a general beauty standard is like the need to be palatable for straight people by assimilating to standards that are ravaged by capitalism and colonialism. Yay! Right off the top, we should caveat that there is plenty of excellent work that has even received recognition within the larger fine art sphere that pushes back against yes. uh, these very things. You know, like the work of Laura Aguilar, who was a Latinx artist who did a lot of work about um, femme bodies and plus-sized bodies in the landscape. Super influential work, and there are plenty of examples like that. But the dominating works are folks who made work that fits in with the predominant culture, right? Which is not an uncommon thing that we see. When money enters the equation, that's often how that works, and that's how you get somebody like Andy Warhol becoming <laughs> a very famous queer artist whose work slots very nicely into the capitalist machine, scooping up a lot of that representation before we talk to you, or before we talk about any other artists, a lot of whom you have to go to art school to to really learn about or study art in some sort of formal, semi-formal sort of way. Sidebar, does Andy Warhol make it onto our enemies of the pod list? Has our Enemies of the Pod list finally included a queer person? This is true representation. We've done it, (laughs) y'all. Here we are. I mean, I don't like Andy Warhol. Anyone who knows me probably has gathered that. 
I think that I will reserve placing him on the enemies of the pod list. Um, that can be your decision, Sean. <sighs> this is this is the true gay rights moment I've been waiting for. Maybe. <laughs> And, you know, just like with Tarantino, the uh, work that Warhol made is no doubt influential. Yep. Or that Warhol forced other people to make for him and put his name <laughs> on uh, is uh, no doubt influential. Um, the legacy of Warhol, supremely influential. Those things can exist separately to some extent from the man who was an awful capitalist without I think another sort of flashpoint for doing this episode, Sean, was my introducing you or at least reintroducing you to the work of uh, Robert Mapplethorpe. Mm -hmm. Have you, to traffic in the lingo, have you spent any time with that work recently? Um, enough in the sense of like when I was given resources by you to like look at the work, look at his history and like explore a little further. Like we discussed in that, that episode, the piss Christ episode, essentially just the conversations of what is appropriate in art and ergo, what is appropriate in publicly funded art and America's really, really sad history of being scared of sexuality yet thriving off of it for money yet having close to zero nuanced understanding of it. Right. As a as a reminder for anyone listening, Maplethorpe came up in the Piss Christ episode, which you should go listen to if you haven't already. It's a important and, I think, related discussion to this one today. There was a Maplethorpe retrospective in 1988 in Washington, D.C., which contained work that was in part funded, and I believe the show was in part funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Senator Jesse Helms, a famous terrible human being, used that as a means to use that show, that retrospective, as a means of accomplishing his, Helms's ultimate career goal, which was to defund the National Endowment for the Arts, which he saw as a amoral waste of money. Um, Helms was a Republican, a neocon, a classic Goldwater piece of shit, like proto-fascist <laughs> Republican senator. And the Maplethorpe show was sort of this perfect moment for whipping up the moral outlash that it would require to remove federal funding from the National Endowment. What Helms could say was, looking at Mablethorpe's work, the government funded pornography, and the National Endowment of the Arts has no oversight and is willing is just a bunch of liberals who are willing to fund pornography, and so therefore we should cut its budget. For anybody who doesn't know, Mablethorpe's work, Robert Mablethorpe was a photographer, had a working relationship with Andy Warhol and, as I recall, a pretty contentious personal relationship as well. A lot of Maplethorpe's work was about queer identity and about queer sexuality specifically. Unflinchingly so. The themes of BDSM, themes of sodomy, themes of the intersection between masculinity and femininity that we sort of take, by we I mean the larger culture, sort of takes for granted as recognizing as 
part of the LGBTQ world, right? A, a thing that just exists. What Maplethorpe was doing was bringing these things up to the forefront and introducing them to a relatively conservative national audience at a time when the conversations that and understanding that we have of this community now just didn't exist. Also, you know, making that work sort of pre and during the AIDS crisis and this retrospective sort of happening, um, you know, in 1988. So one of many artists kind of bringing those ideas up to the forefront, not only of, hey, we're here and we exist and there are people who, who are this, right, that are here, that are among you, but also there's this community that you are ignoring who is dying of this very real plague and you are able to ignore it for now because we have created a culture which demands that they remain hidden. And so if I don't allow you to do that, if I force you to to see them and, and to recognize that they are here, maybe you will rethink your position on it. Yeah, and that, exactly that crux, I think, builds on what we were talking about last week of like, it is not meant to be a palatable, pleasant declaration of queerness. It's like, hello, here's my asshole with something in it. Hello, we exist. We're right here. Um, but what uh, queerness is more modern dalliances with capitalism have melted into is just a pleasant, <laughs> a pleasantness surrounding queerness that, what does that accomplish? You just exist as a figment that is fun and follows these three stereotypes and says these quips, and therefore you have gained acceptance. And for younger listeners, or listeners our age even, this is happening at a time before, you know, the, the sitcoms of the 90s. Queer Eye. Um, queer Eye, a little bit later, made queer folk part of society in a way that was safe and comfortable for straight people, but also gave them a place, right? That introduced them as functioning people in society rather than something to stuff away or ignore or look at as a moral failing. I think the one Maplethorpe photograph that really, really nails what I love about his work is a photograph, I believe the title of it is Polyester Suit or Man in a Polyester Suit. And it is a male figure cropped in close from about chest to about mid-thigh, a nice clean press suit, and hanging out of the fly of the pants is an uncut penis. Yes. It's a simple photograph. It's straightforward, but it really nails what is so fascinating about Maplethorpe's work is that queer people are just like everyone else. They exist. They're all there. And that guy that's in the elevator with you wearing the nice suit, he might be a sexual deviant. Is packing meat! <laughs> or that, yeah. <laughs> but, okay, I'm looking at it now. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, and. But I'm looking at it now, and, like, it, it gets its message across better than, like, some of the art I just spent the last 10 minutes complaining about, because it isn't... <laughs> a, it... It doesn't look white, thank goodness. Um, and B, it looks it doesn't build its meaning around attractiveness necessarily. It's also shocking, right? Because it is so simple. And you can look and and I I did that when I saw it earlier today. 
you look at it and at first you don't see what's going on, especially if you read the title first, you go, oh yeah, that's a man in a suit. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> they can get that big. <laughs> well, and, and the individual's member is the same color as the suit because it's a black and white photograph. And so it all sort of blends in together. Genius. And so what Maplethorpe's work did so effectively is also what allowed Jesse Helms to so effectively demonize it, right? Which is to create this sense of discomfort, this sense of, if, if you are afraid of these individuals, this very real sense of impending fear, the secret invasion of sexual deviants who are coming to corrupt your children. Always the fucking kids. Jesus Christ. It's always women and children. <laughs> but because of that, it was, especially in a, a society that was not ready to embrace this culture yet and was not having anyone force it to do otherwise, right? In the 1980s, things are prosperous. The nuclear family still appears to be working. Ew. And... In the 90s, we would have the cultural wars, but in the 1980s, there was this time of relative cultural stability. We were on top, we were winning the Cold War, and <laughs> it seemed that Christian ideals would would conquer. And that is one thing that I want to touch on, is the morality play that happens here. Because I think, you know, I'm going to have to mark this episode as explicit, because we talk about genitalia, we talk about sex, we talk about adult themes, and if I don't and the wrong person listens to it on Apple, you know, they'll revoke us. But the idea that, you know, the National Endowment of the Arts is funding pornography or that any of this art is obscene, which is at the core of what we're talking about today, right, comes from the morality argument that that we are allowing artwork to corrupt ourselves and our children. And I need to very quickly underline this because one of the biggest issues about talking about morality in art and in anything culturally is that morality is subjective and always shifting. Now, there are ideas in culture about morality that generally we all agree to. You shouldn't kill people. You shouldn't hurt children, right? These sorts of things. No matter what your religion is, no matter what your identity is, generally you agree with those things on to some extent, right? Don't steal my stuff. Same thing, right? Like, no matter what your identity is, we have those shared moral values and they come out of an interest in self-preservation and in... community and continued support of the community, right? It is better if we're not all murdering each other and stealing each other's stuff. Sexual morality is an entirely different issue. Woof. Because sexual morality is an inherently personal thing. What two or three or 10 consenting adults do together or alone is entirely their own business and has no effect on Jesse Helms or Mitch McConnell or Ted Cruz. Oof, all these boogeymen. Or Joe Manchin. <laughs> so to talk about morality, to talk about morality in the arts in the way that it always comes up, which is this issue of pornography and this issue of sexual moral corruption, is a straw man argument 
it's total bullshit because that perception is entirely based on your own worldview and what you personally believe is correct and good for you, which comes inherently out of your own belief set, right? So as we talk about this, keep that in mind. If you are bothered by the idea of a photograph of a man's penis hanging out of a pair of pants, reflect on why that is. Is it because you believe that that is unclean and shouldn't be presented? Probably. And where does that belief come from? Here in the United States, it comes from our Puritan background. And when you highlight that, when you highlight the idea that this moral argument comes from a religious place, and specifically a religious idea that is not shared by the vast majority of Americans, just by numbers, just by sheer numbers, it, is, it becomes completely invalid. Yeah. The, the moral sexual argument is not something that we can legislate on, and it's certainly not something that we can judge the value of the existence of particular art pieces on. Well, you know, as we watch um, Republican Dark Money, uh, apparently their number one goal is, like, getting rid of the Equality Act, which is like, can't we just, like, worry about other things? Can't we just argue about dumber shit than, than like, please don't just have the right to murder us or, like, get rid of our well-being? You know, let's, let's pick something else. Please. Right. And and that ties into all I mean it, it it comes down to that issue of when you protect one group, the rights of, of one group, you protect the rights of all groups. Any minority that you protect is going to protect all minorities. If you believe if you support equal rights and you support voter rights and you support the First Amendment and free and free speech and one's protections of safety and life and liberty. You're, you are going to end up protecting everyone more than if you are working as a society to end the behaviors of certain individuals who are not Nazis. The Nazis and fascists, they're the one exception and certain <laughs> capitalist barons, right, in the like 0.01%. All of those people, they aren't protected. They have the means that they don't need to, they don't need protection, right? Like They protect they themselves, can, yeah. They can protect themselves. You know, like the line is the harm of other human beings, right? To queer individuals, being in a relationship hurts no one else. Right. And you think of the effects of, will it really affect that gay doctor who like has a happy relationship? Maybe maybe he can't adopt kids. But the effects of removing that for a poor, poor trans black woman is a death sentence. So fuck you. Fuck you, Jesse Holmes. Uh, I hope that hell exists just for you and Dick Cheney at some point. Um, I hope you run into all those gays that got sent to hell and they are taunting you ceaselessly. <laughs> They're not in hell, though. Uh, Correct. Right. God's a black lesbian and all of that. Um, <laughs> Don't say that too loud. Tumblr's going to like us too much. Does Tumblr still exist? Allegedly, maybe. Oh, hmm. There's no porn on Tumblr anymore. It doesn't exist. That was the only reason any of us were on it. Let's be honest. Duh. That's why we're on Twitter now. <laughs> well, we know how I feel about Twitter. And it's not because of the porn. It's the rest of it's because it. Because of the Nazis. It's because of the Nazis. <sighs> and also the like problematic liberals who behave like Nazis. You know. Mm-hmm. 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 
So one thing that we noticed that we were talking about in our pre-chat uh, that was kind of interesting was in researching this topic of censorship in the arts is that it's a difficult thing to Google search. It's easy if you have access to like JSTOR or any of the academic paper libraries. If you are going to college, you can you have access to your academic papers. You can find all sorts of writing and materials on these issues. But for somebody who is just curious and who goes to Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing or wherever you do your searching, it's a lot more difficult to research this because when you do, most of the front page results that seem to come up are from 2015 when the Supreme Court overturned Prop 8 and made gay marriage a constitutional right here in the United States. In that year, there were a lot of art shows about LGBT art censorship and sort of this resurgence of interest and kind of the long-term effect of that now, six years out, is that the articles that come up are not useful pieces. They are HuffPost fluff that are advertising a show, right? You have to go digging for the, the real materials. But I, I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing to experience, right? It, like just trying to research that, even as somebody who, you know, has written academically about these ideas and these issues, I was having a hard time because I am no longer part of a university finding academic writing about it. Likewise, the only like thing of note that I found um, had to do with YouTube, which is, uh, you know, not as academic of an exercise, but it is always an... It has its corners. Yeah, it's an interesting microcosm into media consumption. And it is in many ways, right, the largest platform in media consumption culturally. So the one article I found that I remember anecdotally as like other queer, I guess you call them creators, <laughs> um, who I follow, were talking about just, you know, their channels randomly being demonetized or their videos being randomly demonetized. And it seemed to be by the algorithm, but YouTube's, you know, appeal system is garbage. And it's something as simple as like the word queer came in the title. There was nothing sexual being talked about. The thing inappropriate being talked about. While we literally have full-blown Nazis, you know, building giant platforms and monetary freeways for themselves. So this article I found were some YouTubers who, like, do research and data analysis, like, basically made their own YouTube algorithm based off of YouTube stuff. And they found, through tests... Here are some of the examples of things that got demonetized. LGBT TikTok compilation in honor of Pride Month. Lesbian princess. Lesbian daughters with mom. And what they found was when they pulled any of the LGBTQ terminology out and replaced them with friend or happy, they were monetized. And, (laughs) And, like, the fascinating thing, when you think about You know, YouTube loves making money. They make money through ads. Some of their hugest successes are very queer and trans. And, like, that's how... that I I think that's, you know, where a lot of progress has been made culturally. Like, hey, this really... Somehow this person who does makeup that is obscenely rich but very relatable to uh, someone in a flyover state is very openly queer. Great. 
you know, progress in some way. But the fact that this, and this is 2019, so like the algorithm has seemingly gotten maybe slightly better, but the fact that, you know, you can just directly tweet at Instagram and YouTube like, hey, can you um fix this? And there has been no overarching action by the company or these platforms as a whole to like actually make definitive statements to fix these things. But, you know, when someone, this is not to equate this, but like when Logan Paul, who is the largest YouTuber of all time for no reason, um, like made fun of dead bodies in a, in a forest in Japan that was known for suicide, he got deplatformed immediately, as he should be. And there was large and swift action being made. But these larger systemic things about queerness are not being made. And I don't want to necessarily attribute them to YouTube is anti-gay, but YouTube is very pro-money. And what makes money and prohibiting what makes what money is a symptom of all of this. Right. I mean, the the issue is that American capitalism is anti-gay and... YouTube is... Except during Pride-ish. Right, right. And that's a new thing, even there. Um, and, and YouTube is just completely soulless. And as you said, like, they are they are there to make money. And, and what is worse than, you know, not making money is having money removed. And one of the quickest ways to do that is to host material that is believed to be reprehensible. And we don't... We have not figured out even with all of our technical know-how, right? We haven't figured out how to effectively, because I don't know, maybe there isn't a drive for it or maybe the technology is too difficult to figure out. I think it's probably a combination of the two, but there's no drive to solve that issue of, you know, how do we have positive LGBT material on YouTube? You know, how, how do we keep that from being removed while figuring out how to also remove the actual harmful stuff, right? There, there's got to be a way to do it. You can do it. And obviously blanket bans on the word lesbian don't help because that's not solving the problem that is suggested by that being required. But that's been our solution so far. You can cut this, but like the, the just reminds me of the great exodus of Pornhub maybe a couple months ago mm-hmm. where they were finally stamping down on like revenge porn and child pornography. So their like ban was to ban any porn uploaded by someone who wasn't a quote unquote verified user on their platform. Um, which (laughs) feels sloppy and like (laughs) really far reaching, but it's obviously because they've let a problem fester for so long that they just had to like cut it at the knees and hope for the best. Right, and I don't know what Pornhub's verification process is, but I can't imagine that it is particularly bulletproof. No, I think it's very similar to like becoming a you know someone who's okay on YouTube with a platform. Right. I, I'm imagining. The positive side of that, of course, is that it shifted for parts of the public their consumption of porn to paid platforms to some Only extent. Only fans. Right? That's part of why we see an explosion in OnlyFans, and I think that that is a net good, at least a movement in a good direction, it raises new issues like OnlyFans. how frequently having an OnlyFans can be grounds to fire a woman. But 
it's a similar list of issues, right? And 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 it is, as you said, it's a symptom of allowing issues to exist for so long that they become irreconcilable. And then there is a major public backlash. And instead of going, hey, how do we fix this, right? How do, how do we look at this and how do we actually fix it long-term? You just turn everything off and say, oh, we have this system in place. We'll just use that. Yeah. Um, an example I wanted to bring up, and I think it gets into just like this general, but the children is just even the idea of suggested sexuality or like hinted at that totally follows the rules, but because it exists, you know, being queer. Um, and I, this is a sidebar and a great moment for my my great suggestion. This <laughs> this episode is the uh, musical artist Perfume Genius. His, I think it's his, his work, especially his earlier work, is in spirit, singer-songwriter, and ostensibly about queerness, but in a very kind of unflinching way, I believe. Like, one of his first big successes was a song about um, his underage relationship with uh, a male teacher of his. But I think, you know, he he's very aware of his image and like exploring queerness. So specifically this music video with his co-star, who is a porn star named Arpad Miklos, may he rest in peace, ran into some problem with YouTube censorship. This is 2012, but I guess when they made a pre-roll of the, of the music video, just a 16 section, 16 second version of it for like ads, it was deemed not family safe in the music video. All they are doing is shirtless and hugging each other. And they are just holding each other. But it is the suggestion of queerness, and I guess the fact that his co-star is a porn star, that somehow this is not family safe. And the irony of this song, called All Waters, is about internalized homophobia. It is about how noticing straight couples are allowed to be affectionate and queer people are not allowed to be too. And case in point, it, it's just like, it's just, it is so threatening, just even the um, suggestion of sexuality or the sexual, the somehow, and conflating queer intimacy to be queer sexuality and therefore sexual deviancy and therefore et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is all born out of that idea that sex is inherently evil and, <laughs> and so, and so, and so. I've sinned a lot. What can we say? <laughs> Special thanks to our first two Patreon supporters, Robert and Kathleen. If you would like to join them in helping to make this podcast possible, head on over to patreon.com slash meaningwhatpod. We have a couple of tiers there and a whole bunch of bonus content on the way. So check it out. All of this is to say that when you compare American 1988 to American 2021, we have made a lot of progress, especially in the art space, in a lot of ways. And culturally, just in the idea of LGBTQ recognition and the very basic belief that they are human beings, right? That we are all human beings equally 
equally qualified for equal rights. But one of the continuing issues in all of this, sort of bringing it back to the fine art world and the way that we think about LGBTQ art, and specifically LGBTQ fine art, is that it exists, you know, in, in ways that are comfortable to straight folk. There is no question that we have made progress, right? In the art space and culturally, we've made quite a bit of progress, even in just the last five years. Um, but certainly since 1988, these issues are persistent, but they have changed. Um, but one of the things that has not changed is that things that qualify art for the fine art space often require it to be safe or acceptable for straight people. That issue's not new, and that is touching on what I brought up at the top, which is this issue of how we talk about queer art in the fine art space and in the academic space. Not only is it often this sort of backwards-facing conversation of, you know, look at the work that ACT UP was doing in the 1980s, right? Like, raising awareness of the AIDS epidemic. They did all this important work, and now we're here. They have been recognized, and and that sort of protest work has been recognized after the fact, and that is, that is a, a great success. But a lot of times, the people that we are still talking about now and the, the people that define queer art in the fine art world and in the academic world still remain very safe for the status quo. I should qualify that that it's not just straight people that are defining this. The art is not safe for straight people. It is safe for wealthy individuals who tend to be astronomically more straight and white and male, right? That's who runs these institutions. And that is who's deciding that someone like Warhol is incredibly important and Leibowitz and Sontag are very important and represent the queer community in, in the fine arts space. And these other folks who you might not know about don't. We touched a little bit on the last episode about this transition that happened, I think, beginning in the late 80s and certainly during the, I hate this term, but the culture war of the 1990s. Boo! Where terms like gay liberation and gay revolution fell out of fashion and were replaced with gay pride, right? The softening of this movement, mm -hmm. the sort of PR spectacle. And part of that, I believe, and I am, this is not my area of scholarly expertise, but my understanding is that a lot of that came out of an idea that the progress, one, had been made, right? That to some extent, gay people and queer people at large had been liberated, certainly from where they were, and they had made quite a bit of progress um, starting from where they started from. Um, but the, that work had been done um, to some extent, and also that to further their success required a shift in PR. It wasn't that gay individuals no longer needed to be liberated, but that they would not reach that liberation through warfare, cultural or otherwise. And so you see that shift as well in queer art and, and in straight understanding of queer art to shift toward these things that, that are more cooperative, more 
safe, you know, and and represent those issues that we were just speaking about of like spaces that are safe for both straight and queer individuals. Things that feel progressive, that feel subversive without actually being productively subversive. Yeah, and I want to posit from my understanding, which is also not expert, but that that shift happened maybe only because of how Stonewall happened, from my understanding of what kind of the queer, like gay liberation, right, as it was called, was happening. The, the leaders of it, in the more organized fashion, were also unsurprisingly cis, gay, white men and weren't happy with how Stonewall put quote-unquote more radical people of color not as cut-and-dry sexualities and genders to the forefront. But maybe because, and like, who knows where progress, queer progress would would be without Stonewall, for better or worse. And like, we still find ways that Stonewall's inherent black and brownness and transness is erased. But maybe there even the fact that there needed to be a shift back to more corporate happy presenting only happened because Stonewall kind of kicked the door in and said oh no um queers of all colors size shapes and creed exist fuck you which is a struggle that we see in all sectors of culture right of of, of trying you know only rich people say that money doesn't matter and only beautiful people say that looks don't matter you could make a good faith argument that there is a place for for compromise and for understanding and for welcoming people into a space for understanding rather than forcing them to agree with something that that they are against right there it's that that issue of how much time do you spend trying to win the hearts and minds and how much time do you spend uh burning the capital down and and we see this argument we saw it last summer we see it still we're seeing it this summer like how do we strike that balance where does the the work stop and the pr begin but that's a very dangerous place to play around in right Mm -hmm. when you limit a revolutionary argument to the most acceptable milk toast sort of presentation of itself you run the very real danger of uh, undermining the whole process to begin with, right? And you are in danger of often undoing or selling yourself short on the progress that you might make otherwise, which I think is is what we're talking about here, what, what we see with that shift from queer liberation to uh, gay pride, right? The, the work wasn't quite done. In some ways, it was not anywhere near done, but it was done enough so that those with some amount of privilege could say, okay, we're doing okay. You know, we can we can dial this back and make it a a celebration instead of a a culture shift or, or whatever. And they, why isn't the answer that we can do both? That we can both take big steps forward while also being like, hey, sure, I'll be happy to t- talk to you about it in good faith. But also, yes, burn the capital. <laughs> Only one thing can be true at once, and Obvi. everything we need to do must make that Protestant suburban mother feel completely safe. 
that is the true purpose of, of every cultural movement, isn't it? Is to make those in power feel okay. Deep, deep beleaguered sigh. And, and we see that in, in art as well. In our pre-talk, we were talking about Susan Sontag. It, it came up because in one of the pages that I, I pulled up in, in my research, it listed some examples of queer groups that were important. It reminded me to look, act up, up again. Um, but one of the people that they talked about as being an important queer artist is Annie Leibovitz who is very interesting because Leibovitz is a lesbian, but I don't think of her as a queer artist because her work, especially in the last, my entire lifetime, <laughs> has not been about that. Mm -hmm. But of course, Leibovitz famously was in one of the most powerful thinker relationships of contemporary fine art uh, with Susan Sontag, who wrote a lot of the fundamental ideas about how we think about conceptual art, right? Uh, way, 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 way back in uh, episode three, where Sean, you interviewed me, I talked about the importance of on photography in defining the way that we speak about conceptual photography and the way that we think about that line between fine art photography and consumer photography and how both of those things can exist and they kind of move in and out of each other, but they, they definitely do exist. And on photography was incredibly important in laying the foundation for photography to be a fine art, right? Which is wild when you think that on Plato's cave was published in like 1972 or 74. Mm -hmm. So very important people, but that comes with these caveats too. We were talking about them because I remembered that there are criticisms, very valid criticisms of Sontag, right? And Leibowitz, who are both white women of considerable means, especially by the time that Sontag died, they lived in New York and they they ran with the elite people in the art world. And wherever they began, you know, we can paint it whatever American success story we want to paint it, but the fact of the matter is that they they reached these heights that put them outside of the actual struggle on the ground, right? That the experience of Annie Leibovitz and Susan Sontag as queer people is very different than the experience of the black trans woman or even of you, Sean. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely different world. And so all this is to say that pinning any fraction of queer art on Leibowitz is a sort of fraught idea, right? Yeah. Gold star because you are gay. Especially someone who's, like most people listening to this podcast will probably know Leibowitz for the photographs she did where she took actors and dressed them up as like characters and scenes from Disney. Yep. And the photograph she took of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, where John Lennon is nude and wrapped around his wife. Is that queer art? It's done by a queer artist. So, but that is how we talk about queer art in academia, right? It's like, mm -hmm. it is either art that is queer and loudly so, or it's this artist who happened to be queer and exists. <laughs> My point being that 
that nuance that is is missing from the cultural conversation is parroted and to some extent continued in how we talk about queer art, which is our cultural baseline. The way that that exists sort of reinforces the problematic ideas that we have about it in society at large. And it has the power to redefine what those norms are, but oftentimes it also reinforces them. And it becomes this sort of cyclical thing where the wealthy white men who control the world, not to sound conspiratorial, but but I mean it, like the wealthy white men who, who own most of fine art and who determine what fine art is through their money, determine what is acceptable queer art and, and what has a purpose and, and what should exist in academia. And that's not to undermine the very real work that is done to subvert that, but that subversive, actually subversive work only gets so far. And so that becomes the real, the real hurdle is how do you expose the conservative Midwesterner to X, Y, or Z? My like existential fear about all of it is the line is moving inch by inch towards a better direction. But what happens when the pendulum swings back the other way and we're back to just like, just kill all the gays. Which is not impossible. Um, <laughs> There's still parts of the world where that's still cool. So, Right. And more than half of our Congress has shown that they wouldn't actively stand up against that. So, And, and we, we see that really underlined in the struggles of trans individuals right now who are still fighting for that baseline. As a culture, we have largely accepted... Cis white gay males... And, and lesbians. lesbians as well. Ish. We are beginning to finally come around on the gender non-binary. We are making some inroads, but that is still a big issue. But like, if you if you want to see, if you have any doubts about like the very real terror that this is, just think about how we as a society talk about trans individuals, right? And and how we talk about their issues and, and how we legislate their issues as well. Actively eroding their rights right. as we speak. It's not that different from the ways that we talked about gay men in the 1950s or the 1980s even. It's still happening. And just because the Supreme Court ruled that transsexual identity is protected under equal rights under sex, that has not stopped just like any any other moral panic, that hasn't stopped conservative state governments from passing blatantly anti-trans laws and bathroom bills and all of that bullshit. Sports, Sports. which is apparently the greatest concern for children. Sports. Yeah, because if they don't do sports, if they don't do a lot of sports, they end up hosting an art podcast. And we can't have our children... We can't have that. Doing that. Too many really gay meaning what's out there. Just the fucking end of the world. Right. This 50% gay podcast is uh, already too gay. Dangerously so. Advertisers only want about 24% gay in there. So we, we got to adjust the numbers a little bit here. Meaning what? Dangerously queer? <laughs> T-shirt. Somebody write that review, please. I'll write it for myself if I need to. Sorry. Just say, nope, we won't do that. Definitely not doing that. Nope. <laughs> Write it under a pen name so we can use it as um, as fodder. 
<laughs> this is the wildly inappropriate screen name that I'm thinking of right now. Right. Well, Won't you know, it. because we are tied to capitalism as as much as I um, like to rail against it. Because of that, we we require some level of capitalist success to continue surviving. Yes. That's why we started a Patreon, patreon.com slash meaningwhatpod, where you should go and support us uh, with your hard-earned capitalist dollars so we can all keep arguing about this. Yeah, and if you join, we'll make this podcast even gayer. Well, we need to talk about that. We haven't had that conversation yet. Um, couple focus groups, but... Equal representation is still important. We we need to talk about where that where that line turns into erasure, right? Of of my straight identity. <laughs> straight man erasure. <laughs> Newsflash: Sean is erasing straight men from straight white men from existence. Right, right. You know, representation's all all good and everything, but when a queer person of color begins to erase my straight white identity, that's when we really need to start having a conversation about how much representation is too much representation. <laughs> this is where we're at america so from all you've said mason we can blame all of this on capitalism no we can blame this all on capitalism and christianity there we go there we go no we can blame this all on capitalism and organized religion in this case specifically christianity Oh, I really like the double C thing that we had going. You can blame there, this all on yes. Well, fine. I'm tr- I'm trying to figure out the most fair way to put this. You know, I know some Christians that are decent people. Allegedly, yeah, me too. I don't agree with their their viewpoints and and their faith, but that is their personal identity, and that's why I'm okay with it because that is how they experience the world, and that's what it should be. Good for them. Christianity stays in the home, just like all the queer sex you're having. <laughs> Now, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> I will not have that. <laughs> Art installations, the future of this podcast. All of this comes, Sean, you're right. All of this comes down to forces of corporate capitalism and forces of cultural capitalism, right? The ideas that permeate because individual ideals have power. And it is very difficult to imagine a way to maneuver out of that um, because of the world that we live in, but it's not impossible. And it should be noted that we are exceptionally bad at it. No developed country has really figured it out yet, but there are examples everywhere of different things that other people are doing better than us. So, But then the U.S. will start a war to stamp it out. Well, that's all we've ever been good at. So we're first in something. Not, I mean, we did lose Korea and Vietnam and Afghanistan this time around, arguably, and we definitely lost in Iraq. So <laughs> we're good at pretending we're good at we're good at starting it. We're good at starting it. Number one in starting it. We did that World War Two pretty good that one time. Allegedly, yeah. Still making movies about it. It was a team effort, though, so, like... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to get all cut up. <laughs> right. I don't None think of this we, like, started usable. a lead-in. <laughs> we started a lead-in, and then it just devolved into good comments. It just, it's, it's spiraling. 
<laughs> but it's all good content. I know. All content is good content, well, allegedly. Well. No. As you cut out so this statement itself. If YouTube has taught me anything, it's that most content. Most content is terrible content. Most content is objectively bad content. Yeah. Not even from an academic standpoint. It, it's just bad. It is not consumable. Which this podcast may be as well. Okay, Mason. So, from all the excellent um, commentary, history, genuine hard knowledge <laughs> that you brought to today, can we say that we can blame all these issues on both America's um, ties to religion and capitalism? The short answer is yes. Right. I think that when you cut to the heart of any of these issues, that it is one or both of those things, right? It is the influence of corporate money or it is the influence of American Christianity. But really, all of this is an issue of identity, right? It is a conflict of identity and a belief that someone's individual personal experience can ever be a threat to your own. Um, and And that is one thing that we really have to sort of recontextualize in this country when we talk about this sort of thing is that that it is personal identity and it's personal experience and it comes from all of these structures come from a place of fear. It is it is that fear of losing one's own identity, of losing one's own place in the world, right? And and losing that grip on whatever power you happen to believe that you have squirreled away, whether or not that actually exists. So right. what that means for the listener and, and for us and for everyone who wants to genuinely see these things change is that there is an onus on all of us to reflect on how our own identities uphold any sort of power structure and how that gives rise to bias and how that gives rise to a desire to continue to uphold them and how we can productively beginning with ourselves um, and, and moving outwards sort of recontextualize and reconsider the world that we live in. And that I think straight and white and wealthy people specifically have a lot of work to do, but all of us, every single one of us, absolutely holds that responsibility and uh, to do that work. I just want to kind of leave this with a quote from Sylvia Rivera, who, um, complicated, interesting, fascinating figure, very important with the 1970s queer liberation movement. In 2001, she's already saying, this movement has become so capitalist. This is no longer my pride. I gave them their pride. But they have not given me mine. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter? I'm a man of the people.